Hello and welcome to this Endo Life episode 170. I'm Jessica Duffin. I'm an endo warrior, an endo health coach, and this podcast is all about living and thriving with endometriosis. As always, this podcast is here for educational purposes only. Before we dive into today's episode, I want to give a shout out to my lovely sponsors at BU. And I wanted to tell you about their new bath bombs, which are naturally made and contain beautiful essential oils. And their peppermint and eucalyptus essential oils um, bath bomb is doing so well right now with the endometriosis community. They're getting loads of feedback about it. And, you know, if you love the patches themselves you're going to love the bath bombs because essentially it's <laughs> the patch in a bath bomb um so you know if you're on your period or if you're in pain you could have a bath with some of the bath bombs or one of them I don't know you could have multiple if you want um and then yeah get out the bath maybe rub in some cbd balm and put your patch on top, which is um, what a lot of people are feeding back that they're doing. So um, I would love to do that, but um, I don't have a bath, so I can't. But if you have a bath, um, then, you know, I think these new bath bombs could be a lovely way to help alleviate some of your pain. So if you'd like to check them out, you can go to BU, which is buonline.co.uk, and you can also order them from anywhere in the world on cultbeauty.co.uk and they deliver worldwide. Before we dive into today's episode, I wanted to let you guys know that my mini Christmas cookbook is back to download for free. The link is in the show notes. There are five recipes in there, a vegan vegetarian sausage, chestnut and pecan stuffing, a carrot bacon pigs in blanket, again, vegan vegetarian. You can make them with me if you would like to. I don't because obviously processed meats like bacon and sausage are more anti are more inflammatory than grass-fed unprocessed meat. But it's totally your choice. If you're gonna go for bacon or sausages then try to go for organic nitrate free and grass fed those are going to be like the healthiest options for you there's also a custard recipe vegan sugar-free dairy-free gluten-free custard recipe a gluten-free dairy-free and added sugar-free plum and blackberry crumble and then there is a dairy-free gluten-free and sugar-free salted caramel cheesecake and I created this because if you are like me and you do use nutrition to manage your endometriosis and you are sensitive to certain foods like dairy and gluten and they worsen your endo symptoms, everyone's different. But if you do experience that, then I don't want you to have to miss out or, you know, you've got two options, eat those foods and have pain or, or, or GI issues or don't eat those foods and you don't suffer with symptoms, but you miss out. Um, so I wanted to give you some options that you could try to um, make your Christmas more enjoyable. So that's for free. You can download it till the end of December. And of course, it doesn't mean that you have to, you know, eat quote unquote perfectly during Christmas. Um, but this gives you a little bit more balance, a bit more variety. So if you, you know, you might eat some 
foods with sugar in. And then you've also got these desserts that are, are sugar-free, so you're not having like a ton of sugar. It's up to you how you work it. You don't have to be a saint about this, but I just wanted to give you some options to make that choice easier for you. So today's episode is going to be really helpful if you suffer with full body pain, muscle pain or nerve pain or joint pain, or you get joint uh, your joints swell, you struggle with doing too much. If you, if you do activity, you might get pain or you might get very fatigued. If you have heart palpitations, if you have chest pain, if you have breathing difficulties or dizziness, allergies, eczema, um, gosh, so many symptoms, GI symptoms, bloating, constipation, diarrhea, um, nausea. If you feel like there are lots of symptoms and you're just like, this can't be all endo, or it feels like there's more going on, or you've tried everything and you're not, you're just not getting better, this episode is for you. In today's episode, I am talking to endo warrior Natalia Kasnakidis. And not only is she living with endo, but she's also living with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, histamine intolerance, and possible postural tachycardia syndrome. And for those of you who aren't aware, I have done an episode on this already. So I really encourage you to listen to that episode first. It's not very long. So go back and listen to the episode on Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. It's just a couple of episodes back. I'll link to it in the show notes. But just to give you an overview... The Ehlers-Danlos syndromes are a group of 13 conditions which all affect connective tissue, so collagen in the body. And most are rare, but the most common one, and one that is common, is the hypermobility form of EDS. And out of those with this type of EDS, 6 to 23% have endometriosis. But that's not just where the connection ends. 32 to 77% of those with EDS have vulvodynia or pain with sex. 33 to 75% have heavy menstrual bleeding, and 73 to 93% have painful periods. Additionally, histamine intolerance caused by mast cell activation syndrome is a co-condition of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, and we also know that overactive mast cells play a role in endometriosis, and you guys have heard me talk about the connection between histamine issues like histamine intolerance and mast cell activation syndrome and endo many, many times on the podcast. And not only can this cause more painful periods, but it can also create problems like allergies and eczema, to name a few, and having endometriosis puts you at higher risk of having those conditions. Ehlers-Danlos syndrome is also a huge risk factor for developing SIBO. And as you now know, at present, SIBO is estimated to affect 80% of people with endometriosis. And I mean, I could go on and on with these symptoms, these overlapping symptoms and connections, but instead... I'm just going to let you hear it firsthand from Natalia because she's going to take you through her personal experience as a patient living with these conditions. And we're going to be talking about the signs and symptoms to look out for and her own experience with her symptoms, the journey she took to diagnosis and her tips for getting diagnosed, the co-conditions of EDS and their symptoms and her key strategies for living well with EDS and endometriosis. So I hope you find this episode really, really useful and fingers crossed it answers some questions for those of you who are struggling with mystery symptoms. So hi, Natalia. Thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Would you be able to give us an overview of what Ehlers-Danlos syndrome or syndromes are? 
um, so that we have a bit of a kind of broad understanding before we dive in? Yeah, of course. Um, it's quite, as you say, there's um, multiple Ehlers-Danlos syndromes. I'm probably just going to call it EDS for short because it's yeah. quite a mouthful. It is. Um, but essentially, there are a group of hereditary disorders and they're disorders of the connected tissue. So it's down to faults in your genetics that, or a kind of um, adaptation in the genetics that determine how the body makes collagen. Um, and it, it, there are essentially, I think it's 13, there's loads of different subtypes of EDS and they really differ quite a lot um, in symptoms and severity. Um, so what the type I have is hypermobile type, which is the most common um, and so that's what I'll kind of talk about for the rest of this podcast. But I think it's it's just worth noting that those different subtypes are very different um, because some of them can be actually life limiting. So it's it's important yeah. for people to understand that if they go down a, a Google kind of search that, you know, not to freak out if you come across, um, you know, different types. It, it, that's why you, you really have to work with the doctor to understand what it is that you have. Um, but yeah, I'll focus on hypermobile type for kind of the the context because that's the only one that I personally have experience with yeah absolutely and I think I could be quoting this wrong I just did a lecture on this the other day um I didn't do the lecture I was listening to the lecture um and I think it's 90 percent around 90 percent of people with EDS have the hypermobile type something in that range so yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely the most common uh, and I think again I, I don't know huge amounts about the others but um it's it's definitely the you know, one of the ones at least that I think can, you know, where your quality of life can really be improved a lot through um, kind of lifestyle changes and management. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So let's kind of dive into the signs and symptoms of EDS or hypermobile EDS. And I'm really interested to hear what your signs are, because one of the reasons why I'm paying such an interest into this is that so many of my clients I tend to see quite complex endo cases and actually what I'm noticing is they're complex because there's usually overlapping conditions and I'm seeing EDS being one of those. Um, so I'd love to hear what your signs were um, in case anyone's this, anyone who is listening is like, this doesn't feel like just endo <laughs> that I'm dealing with right now. Yeah, so I think I, the, the important thing to understand is because it's, it's a connected tissue disorder Connected tissue is everywhere in the body. And mm -hmm. it basically, what it does is it provides support and structure to the other tissues and all of the organs in the body, um, ligaments, tendons, blood vessels, like everything is pretty much made out of, um, out of connected tissue or, or supported by it. Um, and what that means is the way that it can present in terms of symptoms is multi-systemic, i.e. It, it affects many different parts of your body in ways that you wouldn't even necessarily imagine are connected. Um, and I think that's one of been one of the biggest lessons for me is is realizing actually how interconnected the body is um, and how you know you can't just look at parts in isolation. So in terms of the I guess the key signs or, or kind of of, uh, of EDS or symptoms are firstly based around the joints, so unstable hypermobile joints and the mm -hmm. way that kind of tends to present is and this tends to be the most common symptom in EDS is is in hypermobility type uh, EDS is widespread chronic muscle joint and nerve pain. Um, and that's definitely, that was probably kind of the biggest, the biggest symptom for me that really made me um, kind of, it started affecting my quality of life enough that I started to really take it seriously in terms of trying to get to the bottom of what was going on. 
Um, and count. Can I ask a bit more about that? Yeah. In terms of, so, because I think that it, when we think about hypermobile ODS and we hear like um, unstable joints, I think that people can think, oh, so I have like wobbly joints and I'm going to be really, really bendy. But what you're saying is actually you might not notice that it's your joints causing the problem, but you might have like systemic full body pain, muscular pain, nerve pain. Because often you hear, you know, people with endometriosis get diagnosed with fibromyalgia or, you know, nerve pain down their legs. So when you, you know, when you had this, you said it was affecting your quality of life, like specifically, what was it? What was it doing? How did it feel in your body? Um, so I think there's sort of different, I guess, different types of pain that you can get um, mm. in the body, whether it's, you know, around a joint, around a, a kind of muscular or, as you say, nerve. And I think what's what's really important to understand with um, hypermobile EDS is that counterintuitively, you can actually experience and it's very common to experience a lot of muscle tightness. And mm. what that means is that someone can actually present as being very, very stiff rather than being very bendy which obviously given it's around, it's caused by joint hypermobility, um, people don't expect that. And even doctors don't always have a good understanding of that. And, and quite often that means that people are being overlooked who do have EDS, uh, hypermobile type, um, because, you know, people are looking at them going, well, actually, you know, you're really stiff. You're not, you're not bendy. Um, but actually what's happening there is that the body isn't getting the support that it needs from the ligaments and tendons. And so that's sending a, a signal to your brain that basically says, um, you know, something's not safe. And your brain is is trying to overcompensate for that by tightening up all the muscles around it to try and protect the area from being damaged. Yeah. And so you kind of get this then um, vicious cycle um, where, you know, and, and it, as I say, that is, I think, one of the key areas where people are being overlooked. Um, but yeah, I think most of the time people are thinking, you know, really dramatic things like dislocations, but it can often be much more subtle. Like you can have subluxations, which are, you know, much less noticeable, but something's just not quite in the place that it should be. Um, other like for me, I've always had a really clicky joints um, my whole mm. life since being a kid. Um, yeah, that's quite a common sign. But in terms of, I guess, the way it was impacting my life is I, I had always been a very, very active uh, child growing up. So I was did dance, gymnastics, swimming, and actually that's that's actually quite common, I would say, amongst this community. Um, looking back, though, I mean, I, I did have symptoms my whole life. Like I, I remember needing to lie down and take painkillers after, you know, going for a long walk, walk around the shops, for example, if I was, you know, around the age of maybe 12, 13, which... Um, obviously isn't normal but if you it's very easy to normalize what your experience is yeah um, because you don't know how other people feel and um but it, it kind of really worsened in my uh mid to late teens I would say which again is is quite common due to the hormonal changes which can sort of further loosen the connective tissue in the body um and so it can make symptoms appear more um Kind of affect you more in terms of the way that uh, you experience pain and, and other things. Um, and I think when I started at university, that's when they really began, I'd say, you know, having a, becoming like a predominant 
factor in my life. Um, and that was very much associated, I think, with, with my lifestyle becoming much more sedentary. You know, I, I stopped doing a lot of the exercise, well, pretty much all the exercise that I was doing, um, you know, and lectures and um, time on laptops and all of that stuff that, you know, generally isn't, isn't great for anyone to be spending long times in sedentary positions. But with hypermobile EDS, you are just way more sensitive and prone to um, kind of those strains having a, a disproportionate impact, to, you know, even, you know, whereas for a lot of people when they're younger, they can get away with quite a lot of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so, sorry, I obviously interrupted you to go down a rabbit hole with with joint pain, but were there any other signs and symptoms for you? Um, so, yes, there was probably some that I didn't really, I think this is the, what the experience that I had when it all kind of, um, I started to really feel there was something wrong, um, was that I was having very, very different, un- what I thought were unrelated issues. Um, which which kind of felt quite overwhelming, right? Because you're thinking, okay, if I had one thing, I could manage it, but it's mm. I couldn't understand. Um, it was it felt like playing whack a mole. So I had um, the kind of the, the pain was the main thing, um, but alongside that, I was having um, migraines um, and and very frequent headaches. Um, I was you know I've, I've always kind of struggled with allergies, um, mm. so that was kind of ongoing. Um, I had some symptoms that I kind of now understand to be autonomic dysfunction. So um, I get, you know, really faint really easily if I stand up too quickly. Palpitations I'm quite uh, prone to. um, And that, you know, that is also um, related to the headache side of things. Uh, One that I think I hadn't really um, was, I guess, a penny drop moment when I, uh, when the doctor picked it up was uh, poor proprioception. So that's basically a, a kind of, the proprioception is like the awareness of movement and where your body is in space. And, and what mm-hmm. that can actually present as is, is slight clumsiness. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was one that, again, just had never, it, it's something I'd always had a reputation for since being a kid, but never, you know, never in my wildest dreams did I imagine it had anything to do with, with this or why it was the same reason I was having headaches. Um, and I think then the other kind of big area is um, that ultimately, you know, has a knock-on effect on is mental health. So anxiety and depression are really common amongst the, the community and amongst people who suffer with um, hypermobile EDS. And it, mm-hmm. it really can create a bit of a vicious cycle because basically, you know, your pain and fatigue, um, which is another big uh, element, fatigue, um, stops you doing things you love and spending time with people you love and exercises, you know, or activities, sorry, that you, you love doing. Um, and then the the anxiety and depression that that causes and the kind of loss of, you know, sense of self and the life that you had creates um, a knock-on effect in terms of the pain that you experience because ultimately there is a huge connection between the mind and the body and you know when you are stressed anxious unhappy it does have a knock-on effect on on pain levels and that's something that I really really notice now when I um kind of observe how my pain levels go up and down it's hugely hugely tied to stress is one major factor Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's probably why 
um, this is another conversation for another time, but programs like um, the Dynamic Neural Retraining System, DNRS, and the Gupta program are recommended for things like POTS and EDS because they're literally about rewiring the brain um, and the pathways that create pain and uh, tell the brain that it's unsafe so that you stop having like such a reactive response and, and kind of experiencing these flares when stress kicks in. Um, but I know that's uh, quite a popular, those two are quite popular programs for EDS and, and dysautonomia and POTS. So things like um, skin, like elasticity, so like stretchy skin or um, teeth overcrowding and like skin fragility and, and bruising, would you tend to see this in the EDS hypermobile population or does that come under the other categories do you think you can't see so i know teeth overcrowding is one that i have never um experienced myself but um i believe that you can have it in hypermobile type the delicate skin is definitely a factor um i think mm -hmm. that tends to be a factor um amongst all the different types but just to varying degrees so right. it can be quite severe in some of the other um subtypes um in the hypermobile type you can uh, one of the um signs is quite often having a uh, sort of like a, a soft velvety texture to the skin and, and mm -hmm. elasticity being a bit, the skin being stretchier than, um, the normal, I guess, is not something you ever really look at, is it? <laughs> no, no, of course. But something you might pick up on more easily is, um, being prone to bruising, which I very much am and always have been, um, and, uh, poor wound healing. So mm -hmm. for me, um, you know, I, I, if I have even quite quite a sort of surface scratch, um, I will scar quite easily from that. Um, it will take quite a long time to to heal. The mark will mm -hmm. take a long time to go away. So that's another factor. Yeah, it's and that one's really tricky. I find because um, obviously you know that I'm uh, hoping to go through the process of diagnosing. Um, whether I have EDS or not and, and POTS and I've always felt like my wounds take ages to heal but I've had nothing to compare that to and just be like oh well maybe I just maybe it just takes a long time or like I feel like I scar really easily like just things that I mean, again, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not a specialist in this, but like, you know, I'll have a um, mosquito bite or a flea bite and that will be a scar forever. <laughs> like it won't go, it won't ever go. Or um, yeah, like a similar, like a, a scratch or like a tiny little burn from like, you know, a, a pan and it's like there for like, literally sometimes I've noticed a scar might go after a couple of years. I'm like, oh, that's gone. But I thought it was long term because it stayed for so long. Um, and I also have clients, two clients. One had the implant and like it literally got embedded in like a mass of scar tissue. Her body reacted so strongly and created all of this scar tissue, which we know is like, you know, collagen and, and fiber, protein fibers. And another client, um, she ripped a tendon and um they did a surgery on it and then there was just like mass scarring from the surgery that they had to go in and operate again um and and both of those have suspected eds are going through the process at the moment so interesting yeah. but no one no one picks up on it 
No, and it doesn't it doesn't surprise me to hear those. And I think, you know, things like tearing ligaments and stuff um, is quite common. Um, I, I've done that loads in my ankles and, um, it, you know, it can take a while to heal properly. And as you say, you end up with things like scar tissue. But I think particularly, you know, for, for your listeners as well, um, it is a factor, especially to consider when you're thinking about how what route you might go down with uh, endo treatment. Mm. yeah because how much is it gonna because you've chosen not to have a surgery because you're fearful of the scarring yeah I think you know for me at this stage um going down that kind of route I I think you know one thing I've I've learned and I would say is is probably a really important thing for anyone with to be honest any long-term health condition um but, you know, especially, you know, from my experience with, with EDS is to really take kind of response, ultimate responsibility for your own health and the decisions about your own health journey um, mm. and not to defer that to anyone else. Like no matter how experienced they may be, just do it's not, you know, you never understand everything, but do your best to kind of develop an understanding so that you can make those informed decisions. Um, and I would say particularly for people with hypermobile EDS be very careful like mindful of what you what you do decide to kind of put into or onto your body whether it's you know as you say like with the implant like we don't we don't tend to react the same as others um yeah I think I would just say think about everything to give it that extra thought before you go down um a path or and and really try and work with specialists because um or people you know doctors um, and practitioners who have an understanding of EDS because um, that really can be an important context to what is the best um, best choice or the best route for you to go down with um, with kind of any symptom that you're having in terms of treatment um, because as I say like we don't always respond the same way as you might expect someone without the condition to respond. Yeah, and I think that's especially true with um, anyone with EDS and GI conditions because you're unfortunately there is not a huge amount of awareness of EDS within the like within gastro you know gastro doctors and so I just had a client who um, who saw a new GI doctor and they didn't even they're not even concerned about the EDS they don't really understand the impact of what it could be doing to her gut motility and her stomach emptying and her esophagus and she's got really significant GI issues and the EDS will be the root you know a large root of that it's it's going to be causing the SIBO development and you know so many of her symptoms that she has and so you do need to have someone who's not just going to say like okay well you've got you know I don't know you've got SIBO so we're going to give you these antibiotics and go through the normal procedure it's going to be different um definitely and I actually you know it's interesting to pick uh, about GI issues because that is one area specifically where you know before I got my diagnosis um I was sort of trying to tackle all of these disparate um or what I perceive to be disparate issues separately um because unfortunately that that is how the medical system is set up you know I, I did visit the doctors multiple times and multiple different doctors over 
um, the kind of years it took me to get to a, a diagnosis. Um, and, you know, it was never picked up because the symptoms always looked at and treated individually rather than, than in that kind of overview holistic way. And yeah. at the time, you know, I, I did see uh, a number of doctors um, who weren't specialists in EDS, but just at individual symptoms. I saw a GI doctor, for example, um, and I, you know, later found out that some of the things that had been recommended to me um, without that kind of con EDS uh, context were actually um, not only not effective, but actually detrimental um, oh, God. in the case of EDS. And so that's why, you know, I say as much as possible, even if you're, you know, kind of, I don't know, say you're looking at something that's totally, you think is totally unrelated. So I know you have like a, something you want to go and see a dermatologist, for example, like if you can find one who has some understanding of EDS, I would, I would choose that person <laughs> because yeah. there will be things that you haven't even thought about. Um, mm -hmm. And actually just having, you know, it might, there might be no relevance, but actually just having someone who understands the bigger picture is always beneficial. Yeah, no, I completely, completely agree with that. And just as a side note for anyone who's like worrying, like, well, what do I do if I need, I really need a surgery? Um, so I really, really highly recommend like visceral manipulation or clear passage for breaking down adhesions. They are literally designed for breaking down adhesions. So if you do have to have a surgery, say someone has to have an emergency surgery to like drain assist, something like that, um, then um, visceral manipulation or clear passage are literally designed to break down the adhesions if you form really bad scar tissue. Now we do know that 55% to 100% of people who have pelvic um, surgery will get adhesions, and if you have EDS, it's going to you know it's going to be even higher. You're up, you're probably up at like 95, 100%. Um, don't quote me. I don't know, but it's going to be around there. Um, so working on those adhesions, but also you know, for anyone in like your shoes, who's like, I, I don't want to go for a surgery. It's not like a hundred percent necessary. Um, it's just about management and pain management, symptom management, then clear passage, even though it it's super, super expensive, but you know, in America, it's easier because you can get it covered in covered on insurance. You might be able to get it covered in, on insurance here. I'm not sure. Um, they actually have, um, a method designed to, for some people that still need surgery, but their method is designed to prevent you needing surgery. So they, they literally like, it's an alternative for surgery. Basically, it's not going to remove the, uh, it's not going to remove the lesions, but what it does is freeze up the lesions because most of them have adhesions around them and that makes it more painful. So they actually like rem through their like manipulation, they remove the adhesions around the lesions and that makes it much less painful. They have incredible rates for fertility um, with endometriosis and quite clear in fallopian tubes. Um, amazing statistics for painful sex, pain with ovulation, pain with periods, daily pelvic pain. So they have all of their research on their website. So go and have a look at that. It's expensive, but um, if you're paying privately anyway, or paying for insurance, it's probably cheaper than the surgery, I would imagine. Um, so I just wanted to share that in case anyone's freaking out and wondering what what do they do if they can't have a surgery? This is the thing, right? You, it doesn't mean you can't do things, but I think mm. having understanding what you're what you're dealing with 
and mm. having the context of what that means, you know, how you might personally react to something versus someone else means that you can be more proactive about the decisions that you make. So you might decide to go and do surgery because you think that that is the, you know, you've decided with your doctor that that is actually the best um, path for you at that point in time. But if you know that your that scar tissue is something that you're more prone to, you can have a plan in place. Well, first of all, you can consider that in the, the discussion with your doctor. And then second mm-hmm. of all, you can have a plan in place before and after the surgery or how you're going to support the healing proactively rather than kind of being surprised by that as an outcome and kind of blindsided by it. Yeah, I totally agree. And actually, um, I'm not going to go into details, but people can listen to my episode on supplements for endo because there are certain supplements like omega-free and fish oil and proteolytic enzymes that actually work to clear um, scar tissue um, and have been shown to reduce scar tissue formation in, in surgery. Um, and a couple of them have been specifically on endometriosis. So you can put, I actually have like a pre-op and post-op plan for my clients to prevent adhesions. Um, so it's exactly what you said, it, you know, if you're going through with that, what's, what's the plan there to support you to have the best healing outcome? Um, so yeah, thank you so much for raising that. Cause I think it's such an important point. Um, so you mentioned a couple of symptoms that, um, are kind of symptoms of co-conditions really, like you said, the allergies, um, correct me if I'm wrong in my mind, the allergies aren't directly from the EDS, but are more so directly from the muscle activation syndrome or, um, histamine intolerance that can come with EDS. So would you be able to take us through any co-conditions of EDS that um, you have, that you know you have, or you may possibly have, because there's a couple that we're still investigating, um, and any signs or symptoms to look out for? Because in my experience, more and more, when I see clients who are really, really unwell, there's usually a kind of like couple of these conditions floating around especially, especially with the histamine. So, um, yeah, I'd just love to hear your experience of that. Um, and, and the SIBO of course, um, and, and the signs of, of those. Yes. I think the the first thing I would say is, you know, going back to what you're saying about connected tissue effect, you know, being part of everything in your body. And that's why you, you can get that really, those co-conditions that things that just seem completely unrelated. Um, and one of the, I think, um, best things I heard was um it says unrelated issues think connected tissues and I think that (laughs) way of summing it up um so I would say that some of the the top ones um are kind of GI complications so whether that present you know I've gone through kind of various kind of ways that's presented but kind of nausea when I was at university I was getting really really sick um feeling really really nauseous before bed every evening um, that was before I kind of uh, really, really reduced or cut out um, gluten and, and kind of wheat. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, other things from reflux or bloating or food intolerances, whatever it, it might be, but generally a kind of GI complications or, or you know, poor digestion tends to be something that's really common. Um, and, you know, I've obviously, as you know, recently discovered that it's also a risk factor for SIBO. So mm-hmm. um, that's another thing to kind of bear in mind. 
Um, other things are kind of some of those symptoms I talked about earlier. So um, migraines and headaches are mm-hmm. a definitely a, a kind of known co-condition. Um, and they can be related to um, the autonomic dysfunction, um, which again, uh, pot, POTS, or um, see if I can uh, say this properly, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. Um, wow. Is a, <laughs> really, I can't uh, say it at all. <laughs> Ehlers-Danlos syndrome wasn't enough of a mouthful. <laughs> um, yeah, POTS is something that is quite closely, often quite closely related to EDS. And I think um, I don't know the exact proportion, but there is a high uh, percentage of um, EDS uh, sufferers who also have POTS um, and that can kind of contribute to then uh, fatigue um, and kind of things like, you know, palpitations, fainting, that kind of stuff, or heart, essentially like heart rate and blood pressure um, ir- irregularities. Um, mm-hmm. So I would say those are probably the, the top ones off the top of my head. Um, as I said, obviously the, the mental health um, side of things that, that kind of comes from all of this. Um, mm-hmm. And then I guess, you know, a question that I have, which, you know, kind of working with you and listening to, you know, learning more about um, kind of endo and SIBO and everything is, is there a, an indirect link between, you know, potentially uh, EDS and, and endo, given that a lot of the risk factors for, you know, inflammation, SIBO, uh, pelvic floor problems, histamine intolerance, like there's so much overlap. Mm-hmm. Um whether there's a perhaps an indirect link or association there. Yeah, well, I um, you'll have to watch this lecture because I think you'll be fascinated. But um, as part of like my ongoing, you know, education, I go to like SIBO lectures, and I went to one by um, I'm going to say her name wrong, Doctor uh, Elena Elena Guggenheim, um, I think it is, um, and she well firstly what's really interesting is I've read articles where um I think the percentage is six to 23 percent of people with EDS also have endometriosis but um there's not a huge amount of literature out there on this and the article that articles that I've read have said like the majority of the pelvic pain and the um menstrual issues aren't down to endometriosis but just down to like the EDS itself so um there's I I can't remember the stats are I'll put them in the show notes but um the you know there's a really high percentage of people with heavy menstrual bleeding with pain during sex with pain during menstruation um pain with ovulation really you know really high numbers um and what they're saying is that yes, six to twenty-three percent of people with EDS have endo, but the majority of those symptoms are just from EDS. Um, so, I mean, I have a couple of thoughts about that. One is, well, endo is underdiagnosed, so could there be more? <laughs> could there be more? Um, <laughs> you know. And then, secondly, it also makes me think that you know, for example, you and a couple of other my other clients, um, I sort of have like two camps, clients who respond to symptom, you know, everything we do within a month, a month to three months. Um, and they're significantly better, if not complete alleviation 
um, of their symptoms. And I see that a lot. And then there's this, this other camp, um, like you, like you, you know, you've made all of these changes, but you're not responding in quite the same way where you would expect. And of course, everyone is different. Um, but I've, I've worked with enough people now to see this kind of, um, yeah, these kind of trends. And what I notice is the, the ones who maybe take long to respond or they notice like this thing got better, but this thing didn't really get better or, or I got better for a little while and then, and then it kind of came back. Um, I wonder, and, and all of these so far now it might change. This is just a trend I've seen all of these so far that I, um, these cases have been EDS cases, EDS and endo cases. So I wonder, is there also like that factor of like the EDS is playing a role. So you might just be chasing down your endo symptoms continuously, but actually is there an element that we need some, you know, specialized EDS therapy and, you know, like there's maybe part of this is, is the EDS as well. Um, I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Yeah. I mean, I think just generally EDS complicates most things. Um, and I think, you know, it is because of the nature, nature of the fact that it, impacts so many different areas of your body I'm sure there are areas that we don't even know about yet um yeah I mean I, yeah. I think one of the it never ceases to surprise me there's always something else to learn yeah um, absolutely uh yeah I think that they'll because it is not you know it is not very and we can talk about you know diagnosis uh, a, a bit in a bit but um it's not very well understood by the medical community um mm-hmm. it's not you know, doesn't have high awareness in the medical community. Um, so it's massively underdiagnosed. Um, and, you know, even when it has been diagnosed, you know, most doctors, I would say that you work with on a, you know, you might see, um, unless you go to a specialist, don't have that understanding. Um, and so sometimes that can make it a trickier process. Just a reminder that this episode is sponsored by BU. These natural patches last for 12 hours, so they bring you prolonged relief and can begin working on relaxing your muscles before the pain kicks in, so you're prepared even if your period comes during the middle of the day. Some people even find that wearing them a night before their period can really help soothe the inflammation in the area. To shop, just head to the link in my show notes. And, um, you know, something about the, you know, continuously learning, um, that you said this, this lecture I went to, um, they're still doing research and what, uh, Dr. Guggenheim was saying is that we know that, so a really kind of common trifecta or trio of conditions, um, is EDS muscle activation syndrome, which is when the mast cells, which release histamine, are overreactive um so you get lots of histamine symptoms and um and pots or some form of dysautonomia um so dysfunction of your nervous system your um autonomic nervous system and um with the marcel piece there is now kind of an emerging theory i think it's very very early on that um the marcels release some kind of um, inflammatory chemical. I'm not sure what, and that actually weakens 
the collagen and the joint, uh, the collagen in the joints, um, and they think that might be a contributing factor to the development of EDS that they're looking into now. And then um, you'll have to, you know, I'm butchering this explanation, but um, people can go away and, and watch the lecture. It's on SIBO SOS. Um, but she was also saying about endometriosis in that, because we do know that Marcel, um, mast cells are overactive in endometriosis lesions. But what she was saying is that there are um, growth factors in mast cells that can basically stimulate um, tissue to grow in um, unusual ways, ways it shouldn't grow, just like, you know, so it's affecting collagen. But she's saying this could be something behind endometriosis, that the mast cells are actually um, kind of responsible for a large part of the way that the endome you know endometriosis is growing and it's all very much theory at the moment but if that is true i mean we know that there are numerous um kind of growth factors behind endometriosis there's prostaglandin z1 there's um, excess iron there's lps like there are so there's estrogen there are so many different things that will encourage endometriosis to grow but if underpinning that is like this mast cell dysfunction and that's also underpinning EDS, well, there's, there's your link, you know? Um, so I, I'd be so interested to see if, if more comes out of that theory in the future. I think it's, it's definitely just a theory at the moment. Um, but yeah, fascinating. Had, had you heard of this? Um, no, I hadn't. I, I guess I just started seeing a lot of the same things coming up. Um, a lot of the same co-conditions mm. and, you know, it just seemed like there was a lot of overlap and that's why I started to get interested in, you know, is anyone even looking at this? <laughs> um, you know, given the overlap in the other, in, in the other conditions, um, the, the kind of list of co-conditions reads very, very similarly. So I, and I just think generally, you know, there's so much research to be done on both conditions that it would be really interesting to see, um, you know, I think everyone will just benefit from there being a better understanding Mm. of each of those conditions and and so that we can start to look at better uh treatment and management uh opportunities for people because not everything works for everyone yeah yeah absolutely so let's now talk a bit about diagnosis because um the diagnostic criteria has changed a little bit in the past couple of years um and i think it's something like is it around 10 to 12 years to, for diagnosis with EDS. Um, it's not easy. Yeah, the average age, I think, for diagnosis is like mid-30s. Um, which, <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's bad because actually, you know, for something that is can be significantly worsened or improved by lifestyle factors, if you have no idea what those factors are um, or what you're up against, then by your mid-30s, you could be in a really bad place. And, you know, for me, for me personally, I honestly dread to think where I would be if I hadn't had that diagnosis I was very it was very lucky um to be kind of diagnosed in my early 20s um mm -hmm. but you know by that point you know by my, my it was, um I think a year after I left university um but by you know by that point I was you know in a, in a really bad way in terms of yeah. how that had impacted my life I you know couldn't walk 20 minutes without needing to sit down you know and have a break um I would say was that because of the pain or was yeah. it because of your like okay um primarily pain 
um, mm-hmm. you know, having like nerve pain in my legs and, and my, and then kind of muscle pain, like through my back and my uh, hip flexors um, and fatigue as well, but primarily pain. Um, mm. I was taking painkillers, I would say most days of the week, just to cope with, um, you know, uh, workload at university or, or kind of work and um, let alone social events, um, which again, my social calendar had definitely become um, a lot, lot less busy just because you kind of get trapped in this cycle where you you don't feel up to going out. When you go out, you're in pain constantly. You don't know how to communicate that with people. Um, yeah. And it can just send you down to, you know, quite a really dark place. Like I remember the one thing that always sticks in my mind is um, being in my third year of university uh, during my exams and trying to go and make myself um, a cup of tea and I couldn't actually lift the full kettle to pour myself the tea wow and I had to wait until someone got back and that was kind of a really you know that was a real moment that really stuck in my head where I was just like I know something is not right Mm -hmm. um I didn't know what but I knew something wasn't right especially as someone who you know had always been so like sport and activity had been such a big part of my life and a big part Mm -hmm. of you know who I was that to lose that um was you know a real a really difficult thing to to deal with but I think it was you know being around other people as well I started to realize that what I felt was not um kind of you know over those university years what I I felt was not what other people felt um I remember being um somewhere I can't remember what we were doing doing um we'd gone out and done something kind of some social activity and I was in in a lot of pain like within the first half hour and everyone else just seemed fine <laughs> I remember mm. asking one of my friends like are you not like in agony right now and and they said you know you you, you always seem to be in like pain like is you know what's up and that was a real it sounds crazy but it was a real like penny drop moment where I realized yeah. that other people weren't feeling what I was feeling mm. Yeah. And that's so interesting, isn't it? Especially when you grow up in a, in a family who maybe, you know, because it is hereditary, the the parents felt the same. They didn't feel well either. No, exactly. And and this is the thing is, you know, when I look back, like my mum has, um, you know, very, very similar pattern. Um, And the one thing I would actually caveat when we talked about kind of all those different symptoms and co-conditions is you don't have to have all of those like at all. Everyone presents differently. Some people and it's on a spectrum. Yeah, and some people have some of them. Some people have only one of them. Like it just it varies hugely um, mm-hmm. in how it presents. But um, you know, I kind of whereas my dad's the total opposite. Like he's just you know doesn't really experience. He has doesn't have EDS. He's he's a pretty like tough person, <laughs> and it doesn't seem to like get any. You know, he doesn't really experience pain or anything. And you know, I think my mum and I just thought he was the odd one. <laughs> So, um, um, you know, if you, it is a really personal thing to understand like someone's experience of pain. And I think if you grow up in an environment where other people feel similarly, it is easy to think that that is, you know, that becomes your bar for what is normal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and I mean, we're going to go into this now, but 
quickly in terms of diagnosis, um, there is a spectrum for people listening. So you can have um, hypermobility syndrome, is that the term? Um, where you are pretty much fine. You you know, you might have hypermobility, but you don't have any symptoms. And that's on like one end. And on the other end is the hypermobility EDS. And that has like, you know, a lot of symptoms or not necessarily a lot, but the symptoms you you have are noticeable. You're in pain a lot of the time. And then in the middle, you have like, you're, you know, you're moving on a spectrum and, and the symptoms are noticeable. And what Dr. Guggenheim was saying is you don't necessarily have to meet the criteria for an EDS diagnosis to have symptoms that are interrupting your life and that would benefit from similar management options. And to also have the um, co-conditions. Um, and I don't know if that's just a fault in the new diagnostic criteria that it's too strict, that you're just not making it to come under that EDS like title, or whether it's just that you don't necessarily, maybe things are kind of malfunctioning enough for you to also have the co-conditions, um, but you don't necessarily have EDS officially but I just wanted to mention that because I think people might be like well I'm not that bad like yours sounded like it got to a really significant stage um and I don't want people to think oh I'm not going to look into it just because it's not it you know it might not be that bad and also like things can flare up at different stages so Mm -hmm. for some people going through pregnancy for example might be the first time that some of those symptoms start start because of the um change in hormones or you know, as you get older, your, you know, body changes, you might just not be able to handle things in the same way. So I think, you know, in general, a lot of the things that we do in terms of management that benefit kind of would benefit anyone, whether or not you have EDS. So, you know, I think, you know, a lot of us also live very sedentary lives and, you know, in short, anything that, anything that will put strain on anyone's body will be a problem for, you know, for EDS would just be more, it would just get to you quicker than say someone who doesn't have it. That doesn't mean that mm-hmm. for someone who doesn't even have it or has very mild form, that it won't eventually cause problems. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, and, and actually there's like a life, um, a life, I don't know what you would call it, phases of the life of EDS and it actually changes throughout like you said, you know, it can get worse in puberty. And as you get older, it tends to lean towards that more like chronic pain stiffness um, level. So it might, you know, change throughout your lifetime. Um, so yeah, let's, let's talk about the diagnosis. Um, you know, how was that difficult for you? Is it still difficult for people to, to get? I, I think it is um, generally quite difficult for people to get. Um, I was lucky in that um as I said you know I I had always been um I was a competitive gymnast I used to do a lot of dance so I was quite tapped into those communities and while I was not getting anywhere down the medical route I was also just a kind of um I guess managing I was managing symptoms I didn't know what was going on but I was just reacting to the symptoms I was having so I was kind of managing that with um physiotherapy osteopathy um and kind of uh basic kind of physio exercise physio type exercises or pilates type exercises and i was working with people that i knew through those through the kind of through dance and through gymnastics and who are who work with dancers and and gymnasts in particular and what's interesting is eds is a lot more common in those populations 
um, or it you know tends to be slightly more common in those populations because hypermobility when you're a child and you are hypermobile, it, it actually can be beneficial for those types of um, you know the, those disciplines. Like if you are more flexible, generally you find a lot of the the um, exercises and stuff easier to do. Mm. tends to almost self-select and attract um, people who then might not have those symptoms when they're younger, but will eventually, you know, if they don't learn how to manage them and they don't have the strength in place to control that hypermobility can lead to problems further down the line. So, I mean, after three different practitioners um, mentioned this thing I'd never heard of to me, um, I, you know, spoke to my GP and I, I really pushed for a referral to a rheumatologist at the London Hypermobility Unit, which was um, what one of the practitioners had, or a couple of the practitioners had uh, recommended to me. Uh, and in, you know, in all honesty, the GP at the time was quite dismissive, like quite, uh, you know, when I said, oh, a physio said this, um, there was a sort of a bit of an eye roll that, that came with me. Um, but, you know, um, I was pretty adamant that I wasn't leaving there um without you know I was, was pretty desperate by this point so um you know and, and to her credit she she did she put me forward for the, a, a referral and that's where how you know how I got my um my diagnosis was through the London Health Mobility Unit um and that was really I guess the start of my journey in terms of learning how to how to manage that and tackling the sort of myriad of problems that had kind of got out of hand in in over the last you know preceding few years mm, and I don't know when you um had your diagnosis but now I know in 2017 they changed the diagnostic criteria so there's um I, I don't have the um for anyone listening I don't have the information right up in front of me so I'm, I'm probably going to misquote this but there's the um Biotin score, which looks at your level of hypermobility. So that's kind of one um, part of the diagnosis. And that's going to, um, there's a score, um, score level on that. And then there is um, kind of a list of systemic manifestations that you have to meet a certain score of. And then, and there's um, including like family history. Um, and then finally there's exclusion of other conditions that could actually rule out eds it could be those instead of the eds um and the the systemic manifestations are are pretty long um the biotin score is things like um you know if you put your hand flat can you get your fifth your little finger upright to you know 90 degree position or further um and then the systemic manifestations are like do you have like stretchy skin or velvety soft skin or um what some of the other ones i can't remember what the name is but there's like if you put pressure on your foot you put all of your weight down on your foot do you have like these little white bobbles on yeah. the heels of your feet yeah. um so things like that did you have to go through that um yeah so i, I mean I, don't, I know that they have changed slightly, but yeah, so when I, I saw a rheumatologist and he kind of went through the different, there's a, I mean, there's a lot of similarity um, between kind of what they were then and what they are now. Um, mm -hmm. I, I can't remember the, you know, off the top of my head how they've, how they've changed them, but a lot of those things have kind of been picked up over, over time as well, kind of since, um, you know, so I was then referred to kind of different people for the different areas. Um, but yeah, they they kind of go through and do the the, the 
mobility test um and family history was a big part of it you know in my family we can track it back at least to my grandfather um wow you know one generation back from that we can kind of identify who it was that that had it um just Mm -hmm. traumatic and this is the thing is that people are living their whole lives with with this to different varying degrees um and and it does it, it impacts the choices you make um in in other areas of your life uh you know but and if you don't have an understanding of what's causing that then it's it's difficult you're kind of stabbing in the dark when you're trying to work out how to do anything about it um so i think you know in terms of uh tips i would have for anyone wanting to go through a diagnosis um definitely you know advocating for yourself and not being afraid to be pushy if you need to be making it really clear like how this is impacting your quality of life um and if you you know and really if you can try and find specialists um educate your gp when you you know as you go along the journey um and i think if you have access through work or or however to uh you know private health insurance and obviously that makes the process slightly easier um mm. especially you know given now um after the last couple of years with you know some of the waiting times on nhs but if, if that is your only option still like go and have that conversation because you know before you know it, it will be a year's time or whatever it might be however long it takes um you may as well just get on get on the list as quickly as you can yeah absolutely um and just to um confirm because i think there's a bit of confusion over this this the hypermobility type of eds doesn't need a gene test is the other types of eds that may require genetic testing is that correct yeah it doesn't need a genetic test okay great um and um (laughs) i actually had someone comment on my instagram feed a while ago when i posted about it talking about how this has been overdiagnosed i was like no they were like people are just jumping on this and like loving diagnosing i'm like I, yeah, I, I don't think that's true, but okay. Um, but the other thing that I was going to say is, oh, insurance-wise, um, this is a really random question. Um, and it, I mean, it's from personal experience, but I am trying to find an insurance company to go down these pathways. And um, I haven't had much, I haven't had much time because I mean, you know how busy I am. So I'm going to do it over um, the Christmas break. But I did speak to Booper and they wouldn't, um, they wouldn't insure me. So my doctors told me, just said, just ask them if they cover these tests. So I asked and they said, not if you're having symptoms because then they're pre-existing. But I'm like, well, it's not a pre-existing condition because it's not diagnosed. Do you have any recommendations how to work that? No idea. Because I, I mean, that seems really ridiculous counterintuitive because why would you be investigating something if you didn't have symptoms exactly Um, I mean obviously if you have a diagnosis then yes it's considered a pre-existing condition but I you know if we're talking about people who haven't had a diagnosis or having symptoms they're trying to find out what the issue is then I, I I would have thought that would be but I yeah I have no idea to be honest yeah, she was saying like if the symptoms started when you were insured of us, fine, but they've already started. Oh, 
maybe. Oh, do I lie? Like, sh- that's like fraud, no? Like, I don't know what to do. I have no idea how how that works, to be honest. And this is why, you know, obviously, if you if it's something that you have as a benefit through work or whatever, it's such a huge benefit, particularly now. Um, you know, for some people get it with their work package and, and stuff. It makes it the process, I think, a little bit easier. But mm. yeah, I'm not sure if you're going kind of signing up with someone. Oh, okay, I'll keep people up to date. I'll let people know what I what I discover. Um, so once you do have this diagnosis, what management options have you know are offered and, and have you been offered? So I mean, a lot of it, um, there's a lot of different areas of it. And, and that's, you know, on the one hand, it's a good thing because there are lots of different areas you can start to make shifts in. And if one area is not viable or, or difficult, um, then you can kind of look at another area. Um, the other side, the flip side of that is that, you know, it can be overwhelming, I would say. I think, you know, the the emotional roller coaster of, of getting the diagnosis was, oh, thank God, I, I know what's going on. And then it was kind of looking at the list of people I'd been sent off to see and things I'd been sent off to do and and just kind of was, at the time, just too much for me to take mm-hmm. in. Um, so I really scaled it back. And I started, and this is kind of, I guess, another tip that I would have is work out, as I say, like everyone presents differently, work out what's the prioritize almost. What's the thing that's like impacting your quality of life the most at that point in time? For me, at that point in time, the physical pain um, and tightness and, you know, discomfort that I was having was the biggest thing that I needed to shift before I almost had the the energy or capacity to even think about anything else and the Mm. second thing was probably the emotional and mental rut I had got myself into from living like this for the last how many years um so those are the two areas that I kind of focused on first um but yeah I think you can kind of focus on whatever is the, the biggest thing for you but I would say there's sort of two broad areas to look at um so first of all is kind of at the individual level like for you personally um kind of strategies that aim to keep your body and your mind in you know as peak condition as possible and then the second which I'll just touch on um after is kind of the your environment so how you learn to shape the environment around you in a way that becomes enabling for you rather than disabling um Mm. so on the individual side of things um movement is probably the you know if not the biggest one of the biggest um areas and I think you know the the EDS hypermobile EDS body needs movement like we all do but especially us um but it you know one of the problems is that it's often avoided for fear of kind of flare-ups and injuries which can you are more prone to um as well so it's learning how to move and taking it you know how you can how you can pace yourself and learning how what kind of level of movement you can uh you can do at that point in time and taking it slower than than everyone else around you probably um, mm. and just increasing it gradually over time you know i for me um i would say that well for everyone i would say uh, there are obviously lots of different types of movement but the one biggest one to focus on is strength training um, and kind of functional movement. So whether that be through physio exercises, 
Pilates type exercises. And eventually, you know, depending on where you, you are in your journey, um, for me, when I was able to get to a point you know, after a few years, this wasn't straight away, but when I was after a few years of doing those kind of very basic exercises, I did start weight training. And that was probably the biggest um, jump I saw in, uh, you know, what I'm able to do um, and how resilient my body is day to day. Um, you know, as I said, when I, when I was in my early 20s, I couldn't do a 20 minute walk without um, painkillers and a, and a sit down. And, you know, yesterday I went for a two hour walk with friends and, you know, I was fine. Like I was a bit tired on the way back, but I was okay. Um, it's, it's not always like that. Sometimes it's, it's harder than others. And definitely if I don't keep up with exercise, I really notice a difference. But mm. I have come a huge, you know, huge long way from, from where I was. Um, yeah. Another thing I would say when it comes to movement is um, avoid passive stretching. You don't want to be like hanging out and, and you're kind of beyond your range, end range of mo- uh, motion because essentially hypermobility means your joints stretch further than they move further than they should do. And it's not good for them to be in that place. So are kind of opting for uh, dynamic mobility, dynamic stretches and kind of foam rolling rather than like long passive stretches is much better. Um, mm. and, you know, and ultimately if you can get to building up a little bit of cardiovascular fitness, whether that's, you know, some walking or whatever, it, swimming, you know, anything that is um, really anything that is uh, kind of reduces impact on the body. So things like swimming are perfect. They're the ideal, but obviously not everyone has access to that. Um, so just any you know little things you can do, it does help to counter the fatigue. But if you have to start somewhere, I would start with the strength because what you're aiming to do is give, if your ligaments and tendons aren't um, giving the support that they would do in you know, someone who doesn't have EDS, you need to then make sure that the muscles in your body are have that kind of strength and tone to be able to stabilize the body and kind of make up for what you don't have naturally. Yeah. Make a huge, huge, huge difference to your pain levels. Yeah. It's so, so interesting. Um, especially with the, the stretching piece. Cause I think if people are in pain in their muscles, their instinct is to stretch <laughs> and they don't realize that it's potentially making the issue worse. Definitely. Um, and that's why I say like, it's a, that's one that I've, um, as you say, like it's, it's sort of the go-to and especially for people who are kind of almost scared to do anything, um, any, you know, any other type of exercise, I think, oh, at least I'll stretch, but actually that can be the worst thing as you're not building up that strength. So anything that is building up, um, strength, especially in the sort of, um, around the, the joints, um, is really, really, really good. Um, and, and kind of really beneficial to build up long-term. But as I say, you have to Go slowly. Um, don't you know? Ignore what anyone else is doing. Ignore you know. Don't don't go down some crazy training program. Just take it bit by bit and learning proper form. As I say, the, all of these things are important for everyone, but especially if you have have mobile EDS, making sure you're taking the time to learn to do things with proper form or working with someone who can you know if you have that as an option to who who you know knows what they're talking about and can help you develop that is. Um, is really, you know, beneficial. Um, the flip side of kind of movement um, or kind of exercise is the rest and relaxation piece, um, mm. which probably took me a little bit longer to 
to get on to. Um, uh, and that can be, you know, active relaxation. So whether it's, you know, what, and what I mean by that is like, not just sitting and, you know, mooching for hours in front of the TV, like, um, mm. hours in front of the TV has its place, but, you know, maybe not hours. <laughs> um, I think, you know, you kind of have to expend a little bit of energy to get a little bit of energy back. So whether it's reading or restorative yoga or, you know, spending time outdoors, a bath, like whatever it might be for you individually, um, to to unwind and make sure that your body gets that rest that it needs to recover. Um, mm-hmm. And then kind of quantity and quality of sleep. Like for me personally, I need seven, seven and a half to eight hours a night. I know that. Mm-hmm. And I try and protect that um, as much as I can. And then thinking about kind of the, the quality of your sleep. So having a wind down routine so that you know your brain knows when it's time for bed um and for me actually uh, supplementing with magnesium made a huge difference to uh, how quickly I fall asleep which was something I was really yeah good. yeah absolutely magnesium is just a wonder I just I love magnesium but again I, I, like... I, I kind of used it for a while without really seeing any difference and then I listened to it was probably one of your podcasts to be honest um where we're talking about like the therapeutic dose and I realized I wasn't taking the right level like look right I finally mm. read the back of the bottle realized I was taking like a third of what I should do and <laughs> kind of you know within within a few weeks it made a huge difference that's amazing it's I feel like it's going to get snapped up one day by like pharmaceutical companies and we're not gonna be able to buy it over the counter <laughs> or they're gonna like whack it <laughs> up um, yeah, um I think the the kind of final pieces I'd say on the on the individual side of things are um, like don't overlook the the mind body connection, which I think I mentioned a little bit earlier. Yeah. I when I started doing meditation, I, I I'll be honest, like I'm not perfect. Like I, you know, I'm not religious with it, but I know I know that when I do do it consistently, it does have a positive impact on my pain levels. Um, and even even if I'm not doing kind of religious, you know, religiously getting up and meditating in the morning, if I am having um, a bit of a, a you know pain flare. If I take a time out of you know five ten minutes, and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but just kind of almost focus on it rather than trying to ignore it completely and breathe into it, it can make a big difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Is it? Um, do you have a specific meditation that you like? Is it like Headspace or Curable, or is it just your you know you're just sitting in silence? Um, I did a, a program with uh, the Isha uh, Isha Yoga Foundation um, mm. a few years ago, um, but I've tried. You know, I've tried different things over time. I, to be honest, I, I actually really I tried with Headspace and stuff at the beginning, and I really struggled. The first time I stuck with it was when I kind of went through this um, this program, and uh, we ended up doing kind of I think it was forty days um, of kind of. For, you know we were tasked with after leaving the weekend to kind of go away and do 40 days in a row which I, n- I never thought I would be able to do but I actually did and it, it really did uh, make a big difference so I tend to come back to that one but mm-hmm. I've tried other you know other things and I think now now that I've done that you know I, I can I can just sit and breathe um, which is something I never would have been able to do a couple of years ago or, or honestly had wouldn't have had the interest in doing either um yeah, yeah. I didn't really I think I, I just dismissed that side of things for a while and 
I, you know, my background psychology. So when someone shows me the, the data on something, I, I start to get interested. And I, when I started to look at like the brain scans of people who were going through meditation and the impact that it has on kind of the, even at a structural level, um, it, it's quite amazing. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And it is about, you know, you're right, like finding the the type of meditation that suits you because it, it has to resonate with you you know you don't want to force yourself through something that you hate and there's so many meditations out there so it's all about just trial and error exactly and I think over time you as you start to get more comfortable with it what you like might change or what works for you might change and that's fine too um and then you know the other side of it is just um an area that I think is totally overlooked especially if you you know if you're looking at it from a medical point of view is actually um the mindset side of things like to live with a health condition you have to have a resilient mindset like mm. is it is a fundamental building block and that's something that you know the last two years in particular um I have developed a lot on just kind of building that up and and working on replacing unhelpful thinking patterns with more positive ones and I think that just anything that can get you to a point where your kind of nervous system is more stable um will ultimately help with pain it will help with setbacks it will help with just how you deal with the day-to-day in general and I think that that is something that is is not even is not really talked about nearly enough in in the area of kind of dealing with health conditions yeah I absolutely absolutely agree with that one it's huge um and yeah I mean it's one of the reasons why I'm doing this vagus nerve healing program as well which I'll I'll put in the master in the um, show notes if anyone wants to to check it out um so I mean I had one more question but I think we've kind of answered that um and it was just sort of like you know is there anything that you're doing on a daily basis that you find helps but I feel like you've you've kind of covered them all unless there's anything that you you wanted to specifically mention um I think for me the the kind of as I say like those are probably the main things um the only other thing I would mention is obviously nutrition is a huge huge part of it especially if you've got um GI issues but that's a whole other you know (laughs) area that we really really have time to dive into but I guess the the biggest thing that I learned this year was um turns out balancing my blood sugar basically makes my headaches go away so Mm. that was a um that's a you know for me a real win because I, I had no idea what was causing them before and now I can kind of you know I know how to to get out break that cycle or I know you know how to manage them they, they are less you know when I do get them they're less severe and they're less frequent so that I think nutrition is is another area to look into but you kind of have to look at it through the lens of what your individual challenges are obviously if there's like SIBO there or anything else it mm. kind of determines but um and then you know obviously anti-inflammatory at taking out you know inflammatory foods and adding in anti-inflammatory ones is I think again for any health condition hugely beneficial makes a big difference yeah absolutely and you just reminded me talking about your migraines I'm just going to pull it up whilst we're on this call um make sure I get the name right there are two conditions um that actually affect let me just quickly find it there are two conditions that come with EDS that cause migraines and headaches, um, and they can be really, really difficult to diagnose. Um, and one of them is 
is to do with the um, fluid in the spine um, that it seeps out from, yeah, here it is. It seeps out from the base of the brain um, and that can cause like pressure and headaches. And, but it can, it's apparently like difficult to diagnose, but easy to fix. Um, and then there's also chari malformation, um, which can also, which is basically where the, the base of the brain actually kind of seeps out the base of the skull. Um, and again, that can create like an issue with like spinal fluid pressure. Um, and then there's also craniocervical instability, which I think is like the, the connection between the, the head and the, the neck is unstable, obviously due to EDS. And so the, the, the neck can't deal with the pressure. Um, and there's tethered cord as well, which is, um, I hope everyone can hear me. Okay. I'm turning my head to read my laptop, um, which is basically where the spinal cord um, should be free at the bottom of your spine. It should be free to move. So when you, for example, when you bend your head down or you bend over, there should be like fluidity to your spinal cord. It should be able to shift up and down, but actually it's tethered at the bottom. Um, so it can cause like lots of issues with like excessive, like nerve tension, difficulty walking, bowel and bladder issues, um, headaches, but these are all really common with EDS. So I wanted to bring them up because they're actually a little bit harder to diagnose. Um, and yeah, I mean, a specialist would be able, would be able to bring this to your attention, but, um, you know, don't just dismiss your, your chronic headaches or migraines as just, just a symptom of EDS. There might be more behind it. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I like more importantly, there may be something you can do about it. So mm -hmm. I think yeah. that's the case for, you know, any of these symptoms, but as I say, it's just kind of working out like for some people, headaches might be the, the biggest thing that's impacting their quality of their life, in which case honing on that first, you know, for other people, it might be the physical side of things. And I think that's where it comes to just um, prioritizing, you know, there is a domino. None of these things are unrelated. They're all interconnected. Mm. What that means is that they can have a domino effect both ways, positive or negative. Um, but what that means is that by even changing one of these things, it should start to have a ripple effect out on on the other areas as well, which yeah. makes it easier to then take on those. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll, I'll put those um, specific uh, like problems in the um, show notes so that anyone who's got those chronic headaches can can have a look um so natalia thank you so so much for coming on this is such an interesting topic um and i really hope it helps lots of people listening um anyone who's got these kind of more complex cases and they just can't seem to shift this pain or they just can't seem to feel well um i really hope that it helps any of you listening and um yeah it'll be interesting to see what the research says um and Hopefully it will confirm that you and I aren't crazy and that there is a definite link <laughs> between endo and, and EDS because I'm pretty sure there is. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see how how kind of the research pans out over time. Um, and, you know, for anyone who is listening to this and kind of it does feel, you know, I know at the beginning it can feel overwhelming and it, I think emotionally sometimes resentment, I think, is is a feeling that a lot of people who have a health condition can Feel, and I'd say the, the last thing I would say in that regard is, you know, if you can start 
shifting how you're thinking about it from like, I have to do this. I have to do this. I don't have, you know, I've left without a choice and start thinking about what you get to do as a result of it. Um, you know, ultimately very few people, health condition or not, can neglect their bodies without consequence eventually. And absolutely most people only get that wake up call later in life when actually it's, it's a lot harder to change. So Mm -hmm. I lead a healthier lifestyle now that will ultimately serve me well long-term. And I think, you know, if you can start to see it that like that, that it has drawn your attention to something that you do have some control over and you can influence and that can help you, you know, have the the mental strength to, to start to tackle it. So that's it. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to find out more about what I do or read more on endometriosis and living well with it, um, you can head to my Instagram page, which is this underscore endolife. Um, you can head to my website, which is www.thisendolife.com. And you can also get um, a free guide to managing endometriosis naturally on my website. Um, I've put the link in my show notes. It's a beginner's guide to getting started and all of the areas that I um, have worked on to help reduce my endometriosis symptoms and pain and live well with endometriosis. As always, if you like this show, please rate, review and or subscribe. It really, truly does help others to hear the podcast and hopefully will help them to live better with endometriosis. This episode was produced by The Pod Farm. Whether you're an established podcaster or just getting started, visit thepodfarm.com to see how they can help you go from an idea to a finished show that's ready to be heard by the world. 